everybody to the Enneagram Journey Podcast. My name is Joel, and I'll be joining Suzanne and her guest today, Enneagram 7, Gideon Tseng, the next author up in the Enneagram Daily Reflection Book Series from InterVarsity Press. He's the author of 40 Days on Being a 7. Gideon resides in one of my favorite cities, Austin, Texas. I think we just come out of the gate talking about getting tattoos, and uh, maybe someday we can convince Suzanne to get one. Um, he's a codependent 7. And in today's episode with Suzanne, they'll talk some about that and his book, about his Asian expression of an Anagram 7, and the importance of where you come from and what your story is. You can get yourself a copy of 40 Days on Being a 7 at ivpress.com, amazon.com, and LTM, of course, has it available at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And if you're playing catch-up on this Anagram Daily Reflection series, you can also find 40 Days on being a 2, 3, and 9, and coming out soon will be 1 and 4. Plug time. We are a year through this pandemic, and 2021 is now in full swing. If one of your resolutions uh, for the new year or part of your Lent practice maybe is to grow your prayer life or explore new ways to connect with God or your higher power through prayer, then LTM has a great opportunity for you. With so many different types of prayers and ways to pray and prayer instructions combined with nine different personality types, there's a lot to explore and unpack. So what better way to unpack it than with the Reverend and the Annie Graham Godmother? Joe and Suzanne are teaching a two-night live event, Prayer in the Enneagram, online on March 26th and the 27th. Join them in LTM, and you know I'll be along with my laugh track and the applause button and the rim shot uh, for this two-night event. Soak it all up live and then revisit that live teaching with access to the replay into April. You can find more information and registration at lifeinthetrinityministry.com and there's a link in the info of the podcast. And be sure to take advantage of the early bird discount by registering by March 15th. And now, let's send it on over to Gideon and Suzanne. Have you ever been into All Saints Tattoo Shop on 6th Street? Um, I've ridden by it many times. I've never been in it. It's a good spot. Is it? Yeah, that's where <laughs> I get all mine at. I like that. Oh, very nice. You are you a tattoo guy, Gideon? Do you have tattoos? Oh yeah, I do. I have a few. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I I just am too late to the game. At first, I didn't like it that Joel had one, and then I got intrigued, and now I'm just <laughs> too old to have my own. I disagree. <laughs> no. Never I disagree as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're all in Austin sometime, we can look up, drink tattoos. in a conversation. There, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. That would be great. I was very curious in uh, having the opportunity and the privilege of reading your manuscript for the series to find that you as a seven had experienced a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And in your writing about your journey as a seven, I am curious as to what it was like for you to choose 40 days, 40 topics, 40 uh, opportunities to tell all who read it, what it's like to be a seven on a spiritual journey. And to that end, for the podcast, since it's uh, only a short time, do you have a favorite of all the entries? And if so, which one? Uh, maybe a favorite story or a favorite quote or the one you liked the most or the one that you felt the best about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the first part of your question was, how did I come to choose and it really felt like I've resisted writing a book most of my life. And people would always, would always ask me, uh, how do you feel about writing a book? People know that I enjoy words. I enjoy the aesthetic of phrases. I love reading, I love poetry. And I was always super hesitant. One, um, I wanted to live a little bit more. How I would say it, I was waiting for life to punch me in the face enough times to have a story to tell. Mm. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah. And in hindsight, I need to be careful. Not, you know, it is what it is, but life eventually, that phrase came into my life. Mm. And so really when the book opportunity came up, it was mid 2019, maybe fall of 2019. And my life, probably for the last 10 years, was on this trajectory of, you know, when Wendell Berry has that poem, he says, it's the impeded stream that sings. Mm -hmm. And I've been saying that for five years. And I've been finding life impediments. And 2019, it came to full bore, where I was overwhelmed, barely staying, floating, you know, staying above water. And... You know, my life had fallen apart. My marriage had fallen apart. Um, I wasn't sure my place in the community of faith that I started 14 years ago. Really just had so many questions, so few answers. <laughs> and then I got a text message and said, hey, how do you feel about writing a book? And honestly, uh, Suzanne, I think I was just so exhausted. But that exhaustion I now see as a gift. And so when the invitation came, I said, okay, let's do it. Um, so it wasn't, there wasn't that much forethought in terms of uh, me processing, which for a person as a seven who's in my head most of the time, um, that was a helpful decision-making process for me, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. You had a lot of questions and few answers. Do you feel like before that, time in your life you felt like you had a lot of answers and fewer questions <laughs> yeah well I, I came from a model of faith where if you're leading a community you have answers mm -hmm. then you start giving answers enough to the point where you go do I actually understand what I'm saying mm -hmm. like, is, this, is there anything behind this Call that, so I remember start calling that the Brian McLaren point. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Brian McLaren says that I asked him years ago why he left ministry. And he said, I had to leave when I no longer believed the answers that I was giving to the questions that I was asked. Mm, that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 I remember my 40th birthday party. And as a seven, I had invited anyone that I came across over the, you know, a month. Hey, it's my birthday. You want to come? And I found myself in my house it's not that big just packed with people and i remember thinking i'm not even enjoying this some of these people who are at this party i wouldn't even hang out with it's a very seven thing to do <laughs> but that night someone asked me so what do you think is the difference between you turning 30 and you turning 40 and i think i said that very thing i think at 30 I think I knew a lot of shit. I thought I knew. And at 40, I am at peace with knowing, you know, very little. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's actually an easier place to inhabit, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. yeah. There's something, you know, there's a bit of a wrestling and fighting. You're kind of wrestling the alligator for a second. Mm -hmm. And then once you let go, it's very it's a freeing thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, from, from the perspective of being 70... I find that I hear myself saying, I know this to be true, but I don't say it very often. Hmm. Do you say you know it to be true or do you say you feel it to be true? No. No. Hmm. Again, I don't say it very often, but all of the things that are wrapped in that are life experience. Mm -hmm. That, by the way, was tempered and processed with a therapist and a spiritual director and a husband who asks mm -hmm. hard questions and in a family that talks about real things. And, you know, a, a lot is around the things that I know that I know. <laughs> and I wonder if it's possible for that to happen before you're older in terms of life experience, not older for the sake of aging. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people who age but don't grow in wisdom and grace. They just <laughs> get older. I'd be curious if that's a common seven theme because I definitely identify with having a lot of answers when I was younger. As a parent, I'm sure you saw that and were driven mad. And by younger, I mean not just 
when I lived in your home, but oh, then co- college years and twenties and early thirties. And I still, unfortunately, I still think that I, uh, think I have more answers than I do, mm-hmm. but learn, learning to ask the questions and ask more questions. So one of the things I would ask you, Gideon, and you too, Joel, since you're both sevens, do you think that you, you <laughs> do you think that you thought you knew more than you know, because you're always moving forward and it's kind of looking back that you recognize, uh Oh man, I missed it on that. And I was wrong about that. You know, when you're, trajectory is forward i think you miss a lot of lessons if you don't kind of slow down and take a look around and sevens all sevens not just the two of you are charming enough that you escape a lot of life's humiliations until you don't i wonder if we provide the answers to fit our narrative as we're moving forward. Sure. And that's why immature sevens don't not, you know, immature in the actual sense of the word. Yeah. Don't ask a lot of questions. They just provide their answers to keep, to keep yeah. going and keep doing and moving. I went through a tough divorce as well. I think that was, you know, the first time you're not giving yourself answers. It's this didn't work mm-hmm. and start second guessing things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, it's, you can only reframe for so long. <laughs> And you, you run out of angles to spin, you know? And so that's a huge blind spot. You know, looking back, some of the biggest mistakes or I guess experiences and choices that I've made that have brought me, you know, a great deal of pain. It's just that hyper optimism of a seven of just really not willing to see what reality is. And because of that, I have a hard time, I have a hard time leaving things. So I hired a staff who it was clear to everyone within three months, it was a bad fit. He was wreaking havoc on the leadership culture. In the end, you know, myself, my own health, the community, and it took me, it's embarrassing. It took me three years to fire him. You know, um, I was married for 21 years and it really took, you know, the last five years, which I credit to, <clears throat> I think my kids were just old enough where I just had a little more bandwidth for the two of us to look at each other mm-hmm. where it wasn't just the four of us, you know, that's where I think aging is a gift, the inability to recover so quickly. So you're, you just exhaust your resources. So you can't spin anymore and you're finally able to see, okay, this is my life. Mm-hmm. And then even the community I started, you know, as a seven people had always asked me, it makes sense. You started the community how did you stay for so long? And honestly, I probably stayed too long. Um, But it was hard for me to make that call. But I could reframe, I could keep reframing until I couldn't. Okay, I have a lot of questions to follow up on that. And I don't even remember the second half of the first question I asked. So maybe we'll get back to it and maybe we won't. But I'd like for you, if you would, to start this answer by talking about... uh, your cultural, your culture and cultural difference and the culture of your community that you started. And and then when I hear the answers to those things, then I think I have another question. I'm sure I will have another one, but I think I already know what it is. Yeah. Okay. So um, in terms of culture and where I'm from, so I'll tell you a story. It happens in Austin, maybe once a year. Uh, My ex's parents lived in Savannah, Georgia. We'd go every year. When I was in Savannah visiting, it would happen almost every day. So I was sitting in a bodega in Austin called Quickie Bicky. This was about a year ago. And I was working, it was beautiful spring day on my laptop. And I could see out of the corner of my eye this guy staring at me. So I was like working, then I'd look up. And I look back down and he's like still looking at me. So I just kind of like give him a nod. Working, working. I can still, you know, when you can feel someone staring at you still. <laughs> and so five minutes later, I look up. He's still like, his eyes like bearing down on me. And so I just give him a wave. And he takes it as a sign to like come say hi to me. So he gets up and I'm thinking, oh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk. I want to talk. 
So he's standing over my table and then he asks the question that people of color are very familiar with. And he goes, where are you from? And I know what he's asking, but I'm like, well, I've lived in Austin for 21 years. So I think I'm from Austin. And he goes, no, no, no. Where, where are you from? And in my mind, I was like, I've lived in a lot of places. I can play this game. So I was like, yeah, you're right. Before that, I lived in Detroit. She said, no, 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 where are you from? I was like, yeah, but then Chicago. And I just kept going. And then Toronto, and then Calgary, and then Serna. <laughs> and so where I'm from is actually a small town in Canada. I was born in Saskatoon, which I think is always interesting where immigrants move to. Mm-hmm. Saskatoon is such a small town in Saskatchewan. <laughs> and I think my parents were just like, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Saskatoon, probably the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So my mother's from Hong Kong. And so super urban, you know, big, fast paced city. And my father is a refugee from South China. So his family, they were landowners, middle-class landowners. His father was a doctor. When the Mao regime took over, they confiscated everyone's land. He resisted. So they tried to kill him. He fled to Hong Kong. And then, so my dad has nine brothers. There's 10 boys. Wow. Half of them made it out. My dad escaped on foot, made it to Hong Kong. He knew he had one brother and his dad there. He didn't know how to find them. And just by word of mouth, he found them in three days. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. <laughs> yeah, isn't that incredible? That is incredible. Yeah. Fell in love. Um, my father was, he had his heart broken when he left China, was writing poetry that got published in the newspaper at Hong Kong. And my mother read the poems. They met each other and then they fell in love oh. and moved to Canada. Yeah. It's a very interesting question, isn't it? Where are you from? Because mm-hmm. I'm an adopted child, was an adopted mm. child. And so my answer is, I don't know. Mm. So, like, I get a little weird about. You know, around Christmas time, they do the Ancestry.com commercials, and I'm reminded over and over and over mm. that I don't, I don't quite know where I'm from. So it changes the question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I understand your wide range of possible answers mm. because the question is changed in, inside of us as uh, human beings depending on for me, whether or not I feel belonging that day or whether I feel kind of isolated in the world. And the answer is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. I, I wonder, and I was listening to what you were sharing, Suzanne, and I wonder when we all share our version of that question mm-hmm. and specific to our own experience, I feel like it resonates because we're all asking that question. Even if people have come from maybe more traditional paths or paths of mainstream you know, culture. Yeah. And the thing perhaps of what we're looking for is really home within ourselves. Sure. And if those external things aren't settled, but in the end it's, it's probably a deep human question. Do you think that's the case? I absolutely do. And yeah. Joe is Italian. And he's all about being Italian. He's all about it. It is a, 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 an identity piece for him that's very important. And so I, I think it's just different. I, I think mm. there's a big difference for all of us. As a person of color, is there a way that you would prefer people ask you that question? Like I'm from Floyd Ada, Texas, which is in the panhandle. And if I met you in a coffee shop, it would be clear to me, just looking at you, that you're probably not from Floyd Ada, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's true. But if you were Hispanic, I would think you could be from Floyd Ada. Mm -hmm. And so I, is there a way, does it matter to you if people want to know, or does it feel like an infringement to you to be asked? Because honestly, as a two- if I was feeling kind of lonely at a coffee shop mm-hmm. and you waved at me, 
I would be the I would be the person who would be headed over to your table. <laughs> Joel sometimes yeah. grabs me and says, "They don't want to visit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Great. And so I think no, that, there's yeah. a lot going on in all of us when we make connections in some way. Yeah, that are not intended to be offensive or, or inappropriate in any way. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And my reaction is my own story. Sure. You know? Yeah. And it's about my emotion that came up, which for me, all my life, just not feeling, I was always outside of the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I tell a story of going back to Hong Kong, where my mother's from. We lived there when I was in seventh and eighth grade. And I remember this younger self feeling a relief like, oh, man, maybe I can just go somewhere where I, I don't have to explain myself or my food or my experiences. It wasn't even articulated, but I could I just have this memory of, oh, can't wait. Mm -hmm. And then I remember getting there and being more different. Because culturally, I, I am Canadian. Sure. I, I was born and raised in Canada. And that was such a formative and difficult thing to come to accept as, you know, someone who's in a formative age when you're in middle school. And that really, I felt like threw me for a loop of like, oh, there's nowhere on earth where I can just fit in by the way I look and mm -hmm. talk in mm -hmm. my own experience. You know? Yeah. So I, back to your question, uh, I think I would appreciate if someone said, hey, one asked if I had time. <laughs> sure. Is this a good time? Yeah. You know? um, and then they say, hey, what's your story? You there know? you go. Yeah. We all come from different places. Like, how, how do we, how'd you end up at this bodega? Yeah. Tell me your story. Yeah. That's very helpful. I think for our listeners, that'll be very helpful. Okay. So now to your community. Was your community made up of many cultures or a gathering place for? Canadians or a gathering place for people um, all over Austin who are bored with sameness and want a little bit of diversity because I'm leading up to was it hard why was it so hard for you to leave the community because it wouldn't normally be for a seven mm, that's, a, that's a great question that first question was it made up of all Canadians no, but I wish I had that idea because that's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> to start a spiritual community in Austin only for Canadians. <laughs> we'd be really polite. We'd say sorry a lot. <laughs> we, we'd apologize all the time. I'd fit well as a two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. Uh, all right. I'll try to make this story quick. We were connected to an immigrant church um, in Austin. So the story goes, in the 70s, they were student graduate students from Hong Kong uh, and Taiwan, wanted a place of, wanted a, a spiritual community to worship. Um, but because of language, there wasn't a place they could do that. So they started their own. You fast forward 20 some years and they've fallen in love, made babies, families. And it's a, it's a large community of about a thousand people. What I think is interesting is these are pretty, you know, a lot of engineer, left brain, you wouldn't think of as creative types, suburban. But I think they understood the immigrant sensibility, that faith and spirituality can be contextualized in a specific culture. Does that make sense? Yes. That it, it need not be colonized, whatever expression of spirituality. So someone on the board had a pretty big vision who understood that Austin has a pretty specific, unique culture uh, as a city in terms of the language and art and music and food. And they wanted to start a community that expressed that context of the city. And so um, I was living in Detroit at that time, uh, one of my favorite cities. My sister went to UT. My parents lived here briefly. We would come visit. And so I was connected to their community 
because of the times that would come. And so they asked if I wanted to start a you know a spiritual community in the city. And I was I was just young and dumb. <laughs> Those are happy and, times though, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they are. Young, dumb, and as a seven, you know, idealistic. You know, here's um, a tradition, a deep tradition that reaches back centuries, that has a lot of wealth and riches and beauty and a lot of problems and patriarchy and abuse. And it takes someone in their late 20s to go, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to fix that. Yeah. I'm going to start a community and we're going to fix all those problems. So we started the community. I probably fixed half a problem and started nine more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my contribution. But we started because it was birthed from that immigrant community. Mm -hmm. We were 99% Chinese, 99% college students. There's nothing wrong with either of those things. It just Austin's not 99% college students or Chinese. And we set out to learn how to express a faith that's really old in the context of a city that I think is, I, I love deeply and is pretty unique. Mm -hmm. And we set off to learn how to do that. So slowly what happened, again, this is some seven idealism. So Austin, I don't know how much you know about the history of Austin. Austin was an integrated city. In the 20s, legislation was passed. And Austin is divided by I-35, which goes down the middle of the city, cuts it east-west. It was integrated. <clears throat> and then in the 20s, legislation was passed. And they moved all the non-whites east of the highway. And then was underserved for decades. And so we were gathering west of the highway. We were doing a lot of community work east of the highway, working with neighborhoods and schools and um, and that drive back west, just my idealism, it just, it didn't sit right. And so we eventually moved our community east. We took over uh, a bar that was called Chester's. It was a BYOB bar. I'll just let that sink in for a second. Mm -hmm. A bar without a liquor license that opened at two. So when all the other bars closed, they opened. You bring your own drinks. Mm -hmm. And there was a police shooting in the parking lot. A white police officer shot an unarmed, murdered an unarmed black teenager in the back. And the city shut it down. I rode my bike past that one-story building. And my first thought was just that this looks affordable. We didn't have any money. <laughs> we, we think we can afford that. Yeah. And then we took over the place, cleaned it up. There were needles, condoms, vodka bottles. There was flyers for Sunday programming. There was like male dancers, female dancers on Sunday. And we said this could be a beautiful place to express the faith and the spirituality that we're hoping to cultivate. Sure. How old so were with you? That, How old were you? By this time, I was in my early 30s. Yep. Um, I had we had just had our second child. So this is also a seven move. So, I, you know, having your second child, you're already overwhelmed. And I thought, well, now's the time to start a community. Let's do it now. <laughs> and then the community got overwhelming. So I, to appease my anxiety, I start more things. Yep. So I started the community, got overwhelming. Then I started a nonprofit, that got overwhelming. Mm -hmm. then we started an intentional community, that mm -hmm. got overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But all of that was just really my life trying to bring me to its impediment to kind of just surrender yeah you know? yep. uh, in hindsight that's what was happening but with that move we became we became more diverse we were not diverse became more diverse more diverse more diverse more diverse and then as austin grew i like to say living in austin is like being tied to the train tracks of capitalism with the train of capitalism just barreling through so east austin was becoming gentrified at like speed so the neighborhoods we were trying to serve. And honestly, we probably played a role in that. Sure. We were, I wasn't trying to gentrify it, but I think we probably did, unfortunately. So we became more diverse, more diverse, and then and then we became more and more white. So it, it would make sense if you for everybody to think about 
if you started that in your 20s, by your mid-30s, that is the answer in part to the question you would want from the guy in the coffee shop because it had become your story. And so the thing that I wanted to get to that we did get to, and I didn't know where we were going, Hmm. is that it was hard to leave because I'm – these are my words, so change them if they're not correct. Because it was your story, not because it was a cultural home, because you had kind of widened your experience of one another in ways that made room for different cultures to be a part of your community. And I, I think it's really important for people to know in sevens Okay, what made the difference? When did you stop and why? Because young sevens don't stop. And uh, until they do, they don't look at what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for sharing all of that because it's kind of an opportunity for people to uh, get beyond the the assumptions of why that community held you right i think that's true absolutely i think in two ways back to when what we were saying earlier but where are we from yeah so i think i didn't belong anywhere yeah so there was an instinct in me to create a place where i could belong yep yeah however there's a deep flaw in that especially with the way a lot of spiritual communities are structured and the way I, you know, I take responsibility. I set that up. When you lead the community, you don't always get to belong, which is the weird thing about leadership. And then I'll just own that. I'm a codependent. At a young age, I learned that if I somehow took care of someone, they might love me. Yeah. Welcome to my world. I'm codependent (laughs) through and through. Yeah, that's right. So the combination of those two things, I spent 14 years really just wanting to belong sure. and really just wanting to say, hey, this is this is me. Am I am I worthy of love? But doing it through my work. Mm-hmm. And so it really came to a head. So the first round of COVID. So you're talking late March. Uh, I was recently divorced. Living alone for the first time in 20 some years. And I remember when, when COVID hit, I watched my community and I was like, oh, it's pretty beautiful. There's this infrastructure where there's a lot of care and support for each other. I was watching it happen. And I was like, oh, none of that is for me. Not one person reached out. Mm-hmm. You know, I was living alone and my life had just fallen apart. And I always understood in theory how isolating leadership is i knew my job was to get projected onto that's part that was part of my job but when you know my life had fallen apart and again i'll own it it's not a healthy thing to create a community so that to caretake a few hundred people so that they'll love you (laughs) you know what though it's awfully it, it it's it's i think impossible I'm I'm pretty sure that's the truth. To not live with some expectation that you will receive the care you've given. You know, early in our ministry in, in the Methodist Church, there's lots of fellowship suppers and people take casseroles to each other all the time. And early in our ministry in the Methodist Church, I had surgery and nobody brought a casserole. And I had taken 50, 100. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, wow. So so the only thing I want to say from 70, this 70-year-old lady, is that I've come to learn, I've, I've come to make space for, maybe everybody thought somebody else was bringing in casserole. And I would just offer to you that maybe the people in your community, maybe they all thought somebody else was taking care of you. Yeah. And I think sevens and twos, are not likely to ask for help. That's absolutely true. Yeah. It brings up something. I was having this conversation with another Enneagram 7, and they had done this project, and 
their close knit group of friends didn't come see their project. And the seven was asking like, what, what's that about? She felt hurt by it. And kind of what I suggested, I said, I don't know, you know, I don't know your group of friends. I didn't know this person very well, but I just said, I think sometimes sevens put off a, an image of, I don't need to be looked after. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. It'll be okay. And so people, you know, especially over a long period of time, begin to believe that. And then when something does happen that's important or big in a seven's life, whether it's something great or something terrible, people have just been conditioned to be like, they're okay. Yeah. I, I think that's true for me. So I'd be curious if that rings a bell at all for you. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, that, that feels true. You know, I wonder if, at least for my spell self, it's just so programmed in me to look fine. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've worked so hard to have this curated veneer of everything's good. Look, you know, everything's put together or even like when I'm, if I look back the times that I'm most depressed. So as a, I mean, I don't, Suzanne, you can tell me if this is something I'm a bit delayed. I have to look in hindsight to, understand some of those things sure. i'm getting better at it sure um think about this your orientation of time is the future reframing is the way you see you can reframe something as fast as it happens and then you remember what you reframed in the immediate future you remember the reframing not the event that preceded that so all of that is sevenness so when I look back, the seasons when I've been most depressed probably looked like on my Instagram that I was having so much fun because mm -hmm. I was just running from it, traveling, eating, partying, enjoying. And in hindsight, I was like, oh, man, I was really sad. And I think possibly for sevens, when our depression looks like we're partying or having fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, it does. Cause, yeah. and, and is that because you're trying to fool yourself? Maybe it's a younger protector. That probably was helpful at a certain age mm -hmm. for experiences mm -hmm. just to keep our emotions and nervous system regulated. Yeah. You know, I um, love to read. I love to read. And I, too, was hesitant to write a book. My reason, though, with all three, actually, was that I, if – if you don't understand what I'm saying, I can't come get you and explain it to you like I can if I'm teaching. And one of the reasons that I'm so glad that we're doing uh, podcasts along with the release of these 40-day journeys is because there there is a depth to one's experience that you can't get in a daily reflection. Mm -hmm, absolutely. You can't put it there. And there's the... Uh, challenge to speak from your sevenness. The second half of my opening question a long time ago <laughs> was, do you have a favorite entry? I'm not sure I have a favorite. Uh, I have a few entries that have been on the forefront of my mind. Mm -hmm. So as a seven, I'm also exploring what is unique to a, an Asian expression mm -hmm. of a seven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think both because where I was at in life and then for the last five years, um, trying to do more inner work, it started with when I was meditating more and then the meditation, I think just some of my, defense mechanisms, protectors, managers, relaxed. And then I started getting nightmares connected to my family of origin. So this is typical seven. I was like, oh, this is super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I found a Jungian analyst, and that was super fun, but it was still so cognitive, and I was beginning to have some realization of like my, I'm just in my head. I need, I need to get into my body and my heart. And so 
I enjoyed it, but it felt like mental masturbation. Mm -hmm. But the most helpful thing he gave to me, you know, I was wanting to talk about some of the things with my parents. And he said, yeah, Gideon, I'm happy to talk about that. He said, you know, at this point, it's, we'll talk about it, but their job's done. This is your work now. And he started calling them the man and woman in Toronto. They're just a man and woman in Toronto. So he would only refer to my parents as the man and woman, try to humanize them, sure. right? To take sure. my projection. Yeah. And that began, you know, years of work and therapy and some unpacking of some family wards and stuff. And so I have a few stories in there about my parents, right. one about my sister. Right. I need to sit down and talk to them before the book comes out. Yeah. <laughs> because in a tribal culture, a very familial culture, not only do you not criticize your parents, mm -hmm. you don't definitely don't do publicly. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wrote a book about it. Yeah, you, you kind of did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I need to sit down. But those stories feel important to me and who I am. Mm -hmm. And I really don't harbor any ill feelings. Mm -hmm. that, that just, they did the best they could. You know, there was so much wonderful um, parenting that also happened. So you're saying um, we can publicly I, criticize our parents? That's, no, that's on the not. table? <laughs> As it turns out, you uh, you and I have a particular professional relationship <laughs> that I'm in charge of. <laughs> on the phone. You know, I, I I I do think though, Gideon, that breaking those barriers of not being able to be honest about those parts of our stories. Mm -hmm. Joe and I tried really hard, and we parented well, but we sure didn't do it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the story of our family. It's it, it's part of where we got it right and where we got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think if those things are never voiced, the next generation doesn't get it right. Yeah, the, right? True. They respond uh, either with one extreme or the other. Mm -hmm. So wherever that um, – and it sounds like it's – cultural and and with our friends who are asian i've learned a lot about how much respect there is for your elders and the the boundaries that you don't cross mm -hmm. it seems to me though in the entries in your 40-day journey are an effort to connect not an effort to disconnect mm -hmm. it seems to me palms up right like yeah. uh, and, and I I think there's value in that if yeah. it comes from a well thought out perspective yeah thank thank you for saying that because I you know as a seven I have some anxiety around sure. That, sure. you know um, but I my hope in the book was just to be as honest and specific to my own experience as possible. Yeah. Because I think the more specific we are, the more universal it is rather than. And so I did think, I do think being a person born from an immigrant family, mother from Hong Kong, refugee from China in a small town and moved all, you know, that that's an interesting mm -hmm. story. Yes, it is. Um, and in the end, I'm I'm still trying to unpack it myself, sure. you know. And it's just a bit of processing out loud, you know. And you were saying that that I was felt like I was trying to connect. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you for saying that. That means a lot because I think as a seven, and Joel, maybe back to your your friend's story as well. My I did have a thought. I forgot to say because sometimes we do things, we do external things, we have projects, we have plans. We're actually wanting to connect, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I was hoping that in my writing, you know, that I was trying to connect and that the reader would feel that. And so that means a lot because uh, as a seven, we're not as connected to our heart, but we're idealistic. We, like all human beings, we just want that so badly. And we're doing all these other things. Sometimes it's not that helpful when in the end, I'm just wanting to say, hey, 
you know, this is me. It seemed the majority of the prompts and suggestions were first about all of them. I mean, just by the nature of it, slowing down and pausing, which I, I think for sevens is just so I'm, I'm, we're going to get to talk to uh, Annie Graham nine soon. And I'm curious to see if hers is more about action and doing mm-hmm. uh, what I kept reading. And maybe I'm projecting as a seven reading it, mm-hmm. but slow it down, pause it. But then your encouragement and prompts to, um, to not think about feelings, but like you just said, to connect to the feeling and have emotions about the feelings and identify it instead of just thinking about it. Yeah. All numbers, except for twos and sevens, have access with lines on the Enneagram to each of the three centers of intelligence. Sevens have no intuitive <laughs> access to the feeling center. We have no heart. <laughs> so you have to you 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 have to go there, and you have to be much more intentional about feelings than people who end up in the feeling triad in stress or insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know, like you you got to work to get there, mm-hmm. and then it has to be integrated in some way. And I think for sevens, you you two can tell me if this is true or not. That when you first begin to work with feelings, it's like, well, that was a fun experience. Or, <laughs> or, or ah, I don't want to have that experience again. And then you just keep moving. As opposed to incorporating that into who, who you are. It's like it, you have to let it become part of you or it just stays over there. Mm. I feel real good talking about that because, you know, what I have over there is thinking. <laughs> I've never said that was a fun experience after a feeling after some feelings. <laughs> so, sometimes, like if you get a good sob, <laughs> just really let go and get like some ugly crying sobbing. It does feel pretty good afterwards. Does it feel good to you? I don't know. I've <laughs> I've had, I can think back on two, re, I mean, my two most epic sobs and might have, I'm going to have to slow it down and reconnect with it and not think about it. There you it. go. And, there you go. And we'll see. I'm not sure how, yeah. how I felt. Uh, just not being connected to my feelings or having a part that's really instinctual just to push it down. I can feel it coming out, slapping it out of, way, out of my way. Oh, yeah. I can't cry in front of my therapist. That's not the time to do I'm it. Like if, if there's a place to cry, this is supposed to be the safest place available. Yeah. yeah but no. I would be the worst therapist. Gideon, what are you doing, man? Cry. Don't cry in my office. <laughs> yeah. You need to do that with your spiritual director. We're in, this, in, we're in my office right now, and you'll not find tissues anywhere. No. There's like 80 boxes out in the main room here there's at the microphone. No Center, encouragement in this room. This is, yeah. I was a seven, and so this year I'm I'm coming out of it a little bit, and I'm in a new relationship now. And it just dawned on me for maybe ten years. I was a seven that didn't cry. That's pretty common. I had, I was I was a seven that stopped laughing. Mm. Not okay, not laughing. I was a seven that stopped being light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so stressed out. Yep. Yeah, and it took me just having a bit of glimpse on the other side to go, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. that was pretty pretty wrong. Yeah, this is better. This is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, well, we're uh, getting close on time, so I want to give you the opportunity to say your response to this. There's, It's a two-part question, of course. I seem to only ask those <laughs> kind. The first part of the question is, I hope... Uh, my work on the book in this series will help other sevens in this way. And then part B is going to be, will help other people understand sevens in this way. My hope for sevens is that it's okay. Because I think sevens, we are looking for the fullness of life. We want we want full aliveness. I think that's a gift actually. And I for me, 
and perhaps many sevens, we're mining the externality of life for that and just the light where I hope that perhaps for some sevens and we can feel a little less alone in that, then also to mine the fullness of life within and also our shadows. Mm-hmm. And then for the second part of your question, I hope that others know how hard sevens are on ourselves because we go to the shadow of the one, but you can't tell because we've got this veneer, this mask on pretty good. We're pretty well versed at it or we use our charm. Mm -hmm. But many of us, you know, we beat ourselves up and we're so hard on ourselves. And just to let sevens know, you know, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You're okay. Because we don't ask for help or look like, or we hide it. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's true when you said, I I didn't ask for help when I was all alone, you know. When I moved out of my house that I had lived in for 20 years, it was a pretty sudden thing. I had to get out of there quick. My friend happened to call me. So get this, I'm leaving the place I've lived, my home that I've been in for 20 years. I'm moving out. I didn't call one person for help. Mm -hmm. And it so happened my friend had just called and he's like, you need help? And I was like, Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I would love some. That'd be great. I'm not going to turn it away. Yeah. That would be my fault. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for contributing to um, this series that IVP, I think, so courageously has put together. Um, you know, it's, it's a different to decide to write a book and to be asked to write a book. And so on behalf of the people who will benefit from your work, thank you for saying this. Thank you.